Welcome to Sex, Drugs, and Healthcare, the podcast where we deep dive into the issues and innovations of healthcare and science. I'm Kiersey Goldinia, and right now you're listening to part one of a two-part episode about a topic that's been getting some much-due attention, not only from the healthcare industry, but from politicians, artists, and celebrities of all kinds, which has led to some pretty special partnerships. I've got a special guest with me this week, Macklemore who's giving voice to a disease that we too often just whisper about, the disease of addiction. I abuse prescription drugs and I've battled addiction. If I hadn't gotten the help that I needed when I needed it, I definitely would not be here today. And I want to help others. The opioid crisis in particular has exposed a cruel irony of healthcare. The industry dedicated to fixing the problems of human health can also be the trigger of some of those same problems. And in the case of addiction, this has spiraled into a systemic catastrophe. Um, the opiate problem in America has become epidemic. This first story is a case in point, and it starts in a hospital room. The doctor turned to me and he said, well, your son has acute renal failure and they were drawing his blood, and I could tell that his blood was abnormal. Uh, cherry Kool-Aid with chocolate syrup at the bottom. And they, they had him intubated. They put him into an induced uh, coma state. Um, he had pneumonia, so they'd had to aspirate his lungs. Um, it was just horrible, horrible, horrible. And the doctor nodded to me and pulled me aside, and you could tell the expression on his face. And he said, uh, he said, sir... You need to prepare yourself. This does not look good. Tom Dooley was faced that day with a parent's worst nightmare. His son was on the brink of death and was addicted to heroin. This was back in July of 2015, and Tom's son, named Thomas like his father, made it through that night. But we're going to back up to when his addiction started, when he was diagnosed with anxiety and OCD. When he became 12 to 13, um, he developed OCD and went to see a psychiatrist. And the first, and that was the first time we heard the diagnosis of OCD. We just knew something was strange that was going on, and he wasn't telling us about it. We just knew that there were anxiety issues in his around him, surrounding him. So the psychiatrist diagnosed him with OCD and with essentially acute anxiety symptoms and immediately put him on benzodiazepines. For those who aren't familiar with them, benzodiazepines are a standard class of drug used to treat cases of acute anxiety like Thomas's. You've probably heard of some of the more common brand names like Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin, Valium. There are a bunch of them. Which are often prescribed by doctors on a pro-renata or as-needed basis. But here's the thing. While most of the attention surrounding drug abuse has been on the opioid crisis, the crisis isn't isolated. Benzodiazepines are a separate class of drug, but abuse of them has risen too, with overdose fatality counts nearly quadrupling over the last 20 years. And to make matters worse, benzodiazepine addictions can easily turn into opiate abuse given the right circumstances. In fact, this was such a problem that last summer the FDA issued a black box warning the strongest warning they can give about the concurrent use of both classes of drugs. Now, we've been talking a lot about the downsides of these drugs, 
But it's only fair to mention that benzos do have substantial benefits for people who deal with anxiety. They can provide quick relief when anxiety peaks, and the peace of mind alone that you have a solution to help you get through those moments can be priceless. So it's no wonder that ever since they became available in the 1960s, they've been growing and growing in popularity. Most of those benzodiazepine drugs came out of the Upjohn Drug Company, which is a drug company I worked for in the 1980s. You heard that right. Tom's a scientist who worked for the very company that had a hand in developing the drugs that triggered his son's addiction. So his investment in the drug addiction crisis comes from both a personal and professional place. I watched my son, when he was a young, young child, go on benzodiazepines and attempt to go to school like a zombie. It just made him lethargic, and it was just horrible. He had taken clonopin, and he had taken, you know, Ativan and all those drugs of that class, and, and, it, and his life was just really messed up. And here's when the transition happened. He had his wisdom teeth pulled, and the doctor prescribed for him an opiate painkiller, and he took that drug, and he immediately said, for the first time in my life, I feel normal. He then basically shifted over and then became addicted to opiates. So Thomas's first overdose you found out about from the doctors in the hospital. How did you find out about his second? I found it out actually by accident. My son's name was Thomas Dooley and my name is Thomas Dooley. And the mail came and I had opened an envelope from the insurance company thinking it was to me. And it basically said, if you want to get on a Suboxone trial for drug addiction, this is the information you need to know. It wasn't snooping. It just was addressed to me, as far as I was concerned. And I just went, oh, my gosh. Well, if he's needing Suboxone, something happened. And then I had to confront him about that episode. He was Narcaned back to life in a restaurant. And that addiction haunted his son until one day in February of this past year. Do you, re- do you remember that day? <laughs> I remember it extremely well. I was the one who found him dead. I was working from home, and I went downstairs, and I found my son slumped over in a chair. Um, I was shouting, Thomas, Thomas. No answer. And I walked up to him, and I put my hand on his neck, and I could feel that he was cold. And I just said, oh, no, Thomas, what have you done? And then the rational mind kicked in. And I said, he's dead, confirm it. So I tested his arm to see if rigor had set in, and it had. And then I turned around to see if there was any viable reason to try to resuscitate, and there wasn't. Just before Thomas died, he had gotten sick, which eventually turned into pneumonia and sent him to the hospital. Within two days of recovering and getting released, His friends took him to get more drugs. They think these friends love them when, in fact, they don't. They just want to get high with them. And two days later, he was dead. Both as a parent who watched his son battle addiction and as a biologist who understands how the healthcare system failed his son, Thomas turned his grief into a mission to help others avoid the addiction that took his son's life. We're going to come back to Tom's story in part two, and talk about a solution that he's been developing that could help others who face anxiety without the risk of addiction. But first, we're going to take a look at another case. This time, one with a happier ending. My son's case, he's been off opiates for six years. This is Nick. Nick isn't his real name, 
but he's asked not to be identified. Nick's son, Grant, also not his real name, became addicted to opiates as a young adult, just like Thomas. But unlike Thomas, Grant's addiction was not the product of a prescription regimen, but of an experimental desire that turned into a dangerous habit. I guess about 18 or 19, he had gone off to, you know, one of the best art schools in the country. And, you know, he had always had um, an inclination to embrace life, but also sort of enjoy experimenting and trying new things. And what started out as a kind of casual party environment where kids were experimenting with alcohol and drugs turned into um, experimenting with various types of uh, painkillers and opiate-based pills. And, you know, that very quickly, you know, turns into addiction. And you just have to be attuned to what those signs are. And then at some point, it becomes so problematic that, or at least in our case, it became so problematic uh, that our, you know, son kind of confessed that he had an issue. And so we stepped in. So you kind of had a sense that all of this might be going on before he came to you to talk about it. Yes. And I, I think that's fairly common. First, first, you just have sort of a, a mild concern. And then that concern grows as you start to witness a pattern of behavioral changes. What, what did those behavioral changes look like? Um, it's all the classic behaviors that you hear about are very real. There are changes in their financial situation. You'll see, you know, them seeking out cash um, you start observing them hanging out with different people and talking about different people. And you'll notice changes in their behavior and how they treat you. They become more um, agitated, um, less reliable. So when all of this kind of came to light, what was your first response? Um, I canceled my all my meetings for several days and, you know, flew up to um, where he was in college and stepped in and he was, I think, grateful for me to, to be there. And we, um, you know, we got him some help. We went to a, you know, a, a clinic. Um, and this was where he was first put on Suboxone? Right. If Suboxone sounds familiar, it's because you've heard it mentioned before. I had opened an envelope thinking it was to me, and it basically said, if you want to get on a Suboxone trial for drug addiction, this is the information you need to know. So what is Suboxone, and how can it help people battling opioid addictions? Suboxone is a medication that is effectively a synthetic opiate, but it doesn't sort of create the same sort of high that you would get from, you know, a prescription pill. More specifically, Suboxone is a semi-synthetic opiate derivative, which is made up of two compounds. The first is buprenorphine, a partial opioid agonist, which means that it binds to a subset of opioid receptors and stimulates them, but only partially, so you don't experience the same high sensation that you would from, say, heroin. But it can trick the brain into thinking that the compound bound to the receptor is heroin, and this can prevent continued cravings. The second compound is naloxone, which is often used in emergency situations to reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. Narcan, which is a brand of naloxone, you may recall was used to save Thomas's life during his second overdose. He was narcan back to life in a restaurant. Naloxone is a competitive opioid antagonist, meaning that it binds to opioid receptors without activating them. So with buprenorphine and naloxone occupying the opioid receptors, even if someone on Suboxone were to take an opiate, it wouldn't have the effect that they were seeking. 
it sort of gives you comfort that, you know, gee, there's no point in relapsing. It's not going to have the effect in my body. Exactly. This may sound like a miracle drug. And for many people, it has been. It gets you out of the lifestyle that you were in and gets you out of craving um, opiates all day. And that's a really important thing because it allows you to get your life back on track. You can go back to school. You can, you know, interact with people and lead a fairly normal existence while you work on, you know, the underlying issues that may be contributing to your addiction and allow yourself to get healthy, allow yourself to stop selling, stop hanging out with people who are doing dangerous things. And so on the one hand, it's a terrific medication. And, and I think using that as a bridge to sobriety is a really useful thing. Suboxone has been effective at weaning people off of opiates, but because it contains buprenorphine, which has some of the same effects as opiates like heroin, there is a risk of dependence. It is hard to get off of. What we observed is somewhere, you know, toward the end of that 24 hours, you know, it's wearing off and your body is starting to go through some withdrawal symptoms from the Suboxone. You feel off a little bit like you might feel if you were hungover or something. And um, on the occasions we were Together, I'd watch him every morning take a couple hours to get his day going. And these effects, although better than the addiction they're treating, can sometimes mean that you're just trading in one addiction for another. There are a number of psychiatrists, addiction psychiatrists, who in hindsight, I think, correctly believe Suboxone should only be used as a bridge. And some people think that's a three-month bridge. Some people think it's a six-month bridge because it can become addictive itself. And I think they're right. Others believe, you know, you should use Suboxone as long as you need to. It could be years until the person really feels stable. Um, And, I mean, we, I guess, for a number of years followed that latter philosophy, thinking that, you know, gee, this is a a miracle. Um, It seemed like, oh, we'll just keep using this, and it seems to be really helping. But you don't realize that you're basically creating what is what would be a healthier addiction, but it's still an addiction of forms because it's hard to get off. This is true. While many psychiatrists and recovery centers advocate the short-term use of Suboxone, it's also prescribed as a longer-term maintenance program. Grant used Suboxone as a longer-term solution like this, and although he was able to get off the drug eventually, some are finding that extremely difficult to do. Last year, the New York Times showcased the story of April Heilman, who, in an effort to treat her opiate addiction, became addicted to Suboxone and abused the drug to a dangerous point. The article warns that while a bridge to sobriety can be beneficial, if you get stuck on that bridge, you haven't solved the issue. But the problems that face addicts don't start and stop with the drugs that are prescribed to treat them. The problems of the industry run much deeper. Because the reality is that if you seek help for your addiction, your treatment may differ depending on where you go. A study published in the Journal of Addictive Behaviors, Therapy, and Rehabilitation notes that the use of an opioid agonist, like buprenorphine, is the standard of care to treat opioid addictions. Yet, many Narcotics Anonymous programs stigmatize the use of these medications by discouraging patients on them from speaking up at meetings or recognizing themselves as sober. And these conflicting messages can leave addicts without a clear path to recovery. This, Nick feels, threatened his son's chance of getting clean. For most conditions that are this prevalent, um, there is a very clear standard of, of care. If you have, you know, if you have a torn meniscus in your knee, you could probably go to any 
orthopedic surgeon in America, and they might have a difference of opinion around, do you need to do it now or can you wait another year? But they're generally going to know what procedure to do. Um, you know, and there is a, an accepted protocol and standard of care. There is not for addiction. And um, you could go to five different psy- uh, psychiatrists and you'll get five different answers. And so it's extremely difficult to navigate. Um, you know, I happened to be friends with the head of a adult psychiatry at one of the leading hospitals, um, in America. And even he said, you know, it's extremely difficult, uh, to handle and there's no sort of common shared view. In our case, you know, I spoke with and on the phone, uh, multiple psychiatrists and again, found very different perspectives on both how to treat addiction and including the, the use of Suboxone. But fortunately, Grant is now sober and doing well. He's doing uh, great. So he spent, you know, the first couple of years out of college, he spent here in our hometown. And then he moved um, as he was feeling stronger and his career was starting to unfold a bit. He moved out west and then ultimately to Los Angeles about a year ago where he's doing really well. He is a songwriter and music producer and very engaged in collaborating with lots of artists on the West Coast. And so he's not only been off opiates for six years, he's been off Suboxone for two years. But the opiate problem, it's now just straight up one of the most troubling medical issues of our time. Although there's still a lot of work to do when it comes to treating and preventing addiction, this doesn't mean that we're doomed to keep perpetuating the opioid crisis. In part two, we'll talk about some of the solutions that are already in the works to try to address these issues and more of the nuances of the crisis that could impact the future of healthcare. For more information, you can find the studies and sources mentioned in this episode in the description on SoundCloud. To stay up to date on future episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at SexDrugsNHC and subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Sex, Drugs, and Healthcare is produced by me and sponsored by FundRx, an early-stage venture capital firm based in New York City. If you're a healthcare or life sciences entrepreneur looking for advice or funding, you can find more information at fundrx.com. I'll see you back here next month for more Sex, Drugs, and Healthcare.